Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. It has been repeated often that the children are our future. Teach them well and show them the way. Yet, in the real world, our children find themselves in dangerous spaces with few protections and guidance. A recent release report an analysis by the Annie E. Casey Foundation reveals some startling statistics regarding the well-being of children in 2020. 25% lived in poverty. 26% lived in homes where family, families did not have secured employment. 20% lived in homes with housing costs. Uh, I said, I'm going to start this back over again. Okay. 25% lived in poverty. 26% lived in homes where families did not have secure employment. 26% lived in homes with high housing costs. 56% were not in a school-like setting at ages three and four. 64% were not reading proficient by the fourth grade. 63% were not math proficient by the eighth grade. 37% lived in single family homes. And these troublesome results and factors have neg negatively impacted the learning processes and opportunities for African-Americans and children of color significantly more than it has for similarly situated white children. All is not lost because there are efforts underway to address the results of some of these burdens. One such effort is directed by the Village of Wisdom, now DOW, which exists to liberate and protect the intellectual curiosity and positive racial self-concept of African-American children. VOW is based in Durham, and three of its leaders are joining us to discuss the creation of safe spaces and positive directions for parents of our children. So tonight we are joined by Taylor Mary Weber Fields, Asante Malone, and Denise Page about VOW and its upcoming DreamShip program. So first of all, we want to just thank the uh, three of you for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having us. us. Thank you for having us. To start us off with this uh, discussion, uh, uh, will one of you just kind of describe the VOW, the VOW, how it was uh, created and what is its uh, purpose? I would love to hear you describe how, and I can follow up with some history. Okay, <laughs> so 
Vow is a place where Black parents come and are able to speak up and create um, opportunities and dive down into how can we um, approach the schools in a very proactive instead of reactive way. Um, it gives parents a chance to be able to be seen by the schools and heard by the schools and rest in their Blackness. Yeah. No, I love, I just wanted to hear you describe it, Denise, because this is, the village exists for you, right? Right. Like Black parents. Um, and so just hearing um, Denise describe the work in that way, um, it just reminds me around the inception of Village of Wisdom. Um, so we came together in 2014 to do just that, what Denise said, um, hold space for Black parents. Um, historically, uh, black parents wisdom has not been um, has been undervalued in the school system. Um, but we as black folks living and breathing those experiences that you named, Mr. Joyner, um, we know that we hold a lot of wisdom and we know the solutions to our um, struggles. So Village of Wisdom exists to hold and incubate, you know, hold space for those conversations um, in ways that are culturally relevant and expressive to us. Um, and so Long story short, Village of Wisdom exists to protect Black genius, um, and we protect Black genius through the dreams, experiences, and wisdom of Black parents. Now, you, you talk about uh, creating opportunities to approach the, uh, the schools. Uh, can you kind of describe uh, some of the approaches that, uh, that, that's been developed that uh, allows for the uh, parents to get to individual teachers or to the school board or the school uh, administrations uh, to uh, help them better service uh, the needs of the uh, children that uh, that attend those schools. I, do y'all mind if I take lead on this one? Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so one way in which this happens, um, I can speak to two functional areas specifically. Uh, one that I'm, you know, responsible for leading, which is instructional liberation. And so one way that um, parents are positioned to have this, you know, much needed discourse with educators is that when we are, you know, as an organization, when we're contracted to be in community with educators and school leaders, whether it's, you know, facilitating learning opportunities or facilitating, you know, professional development for the educators, um, we invite our, you know, Black parent leaders to co-facilitate those spaces with us. And so that allows, you know, parents from those schools or just, you know, Black parents in general from the community, it allows them the access to the decision makers of the schools in which they, you know, their children attend. Um, but it also, you know, allows them access to the instructors who will be in these intimate settings with their, their children. And, um, you know, it, it, it provides them with the opportunity to speak to what types of experiences, what types of affirmations, what types of content and activities um, those parents would like for their children to experience. Mm-hmm. Right, can, you, can you just take a couple of minutes and talk about how receptive uh, the uh, administrators and teachers uh, have been uh, to the, uh, uh, these opportunities that you've availed yourself of? Mixed feelings. Overall, there's been, you know, a lot of a lot of support because, you know, parents have been communicating, I think, historically for something, you know, like this. Um, and why I say mixed feelings is because there are some sentiments um, 
when when we are advocating for new approaches to instruction, um, you may have those that are veteran school leaders or veteran educators that you know may feel as though there isn't as as much area of growth for them, and so there's you know sometimes a little bit of pushback when you have to you know quote unquote teach you know old dogs new tricks for lack of a of a, of a, of a better um term but um in my experience and again this is just from where i sit i think there's been an overwhelming amount of support and and and, and reception around like black parents taking the lead in this type of work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um asante you mentioned that you um kind of take the lead when it comes to instructional liberation. Can each of you share uh, your specific role within the organization and how you became involved in it? So I can go, I am a parent, ample parent leader. So I have uh, been in research. I've done design kit, a toolkit, design a toolkit, and I am now a parent reflective partner in COOL. Each one of those sit under different um, departments in bio. And as a parent, I'm able to, I can go from one space to the other. And that's been the, the best part about it, like not being stuck in one spot and not being able to maneuver and use my skills in other places. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that was Denise Page. How you came into the word. Mm -hmm. So how I got here was I have been in Chapel, I'm from Chapel Hill. So my kids are in the Chapel Hill School District and my oldest is 20 and my youngest is 13. And I've been already as an advocate for them. And I had been working over there and another parent by the name of Courtney was like, hey, you got to come to Val. Like this is the best place for you to be with all the stuff that you do, like to advocate for the kids in the school system. You got to come. And I came and I fit right in. Like they accepted me for who I was. They didn't judge me. Like I'm able to be authentically myself. I'm able to be black 100% of the time. Although I am outside the world, but they accepted me exactly how I am with no like refining me or molding me. Mm. Hey, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. That was Denise Page and Taylor Mary Weber Fields. What about you? See, yes. So I, um, so my current role um, at Village of Wisdom is the director of parent evolution, um, affectionately known as the Village Conjurist, um, because the bulk of my role is learning from and making magic with reproducing new ideas and systems with Black parents. Um, and so in that work, um, you know, in terms of incubating and holding space, um, I would say that Village of Wisdom has really found its niche in caring for Black parents. Um, and so my role in that is really, um, is really articulating our approach. And so the approach, our approach to uh, parent evolution is a culture, is incubating folks within a culture of care. Um, and so the way we describe that is through rights. Um, Black parents have the right to rest. They have the right to interrogate the spaces that they're in. They have the right to transform. They have the right to express themselves. And they also have the right to support. Um, and so the way I came to this work um, is from, you know, my own experiences growing up in a single parent household and my mother being an advocate in the school spaces. Um, and also having the benefit of a strong um, and protective family. I know that 
again, Mr. Irving, a lot of those um, statistics that you gave earlier, everybody doesn't have access to that type of support. And so that's where the village comes in, right? That's the responsibility of the community. Um, and so I found my home in Village of Wisdom. And so my job is now to just invite more folks into that home and, and make sure they're well taken care of. So, yeah. And I came to this work um, actually as a volunteer back in 2014. And um, I just never left. So, <laughs> yeah. Right, thank you. And Arsante Malone. Yeah, so I am the Associate Director of Instructional Liberation. Um, so I lead our school transformation work. Uh, my work is, is grounded in um, creating, tracking, and validating a process uh, to creating culturally affirming learning environments for Black students that drive um, social, emotional, and academic outcomes. Um, I've been a part of the village for a few, well, I've been in this particular position since um, September, but the village and I have some history that spans over a few years. Um, I used to do, you know, contracted work with Village of Wisdom in a similar capacity. Um, and just, you know, overall professionally, the, the vast majority of my experience comes from um, education, so teaching in undergrad, working as a school leader, um, being an instructional coach. So essentially, I just leverage, you know, my experience and, you know, utilize the tools that, you know, Village of Wisdom has created in partnership with um, Black parents to transform school districts. You know, I, at the beginning, uh, I talked about a number of uh, statistics that had been uh, produced by the uh, Annie Casey uh, Foundation, uh, which uh, describes a lot of the demographics of uh, children in our school system. Of course, we all know that uh, statistics uh, don't determine uh, your value or your ability uh, to uh, uh, successfully navigate through the uh, educational process. So can you kind of talk about some of the, the major issues that uh, you have had to raise with the uh, school systems about uh, your children, our children, children of, uh, of color uh, that, uh, that populate uh, probably uh, more than 50% of the uh, population of most schools uh, in, the, uh, in the state now. So, uh, why don't we just start with Mr. Malone on that? <laughs> so for me, um, the biggest thing that I've noticed is a lack of genuine relationships with Black students and their families. And as an instructor, as an educator, we, we, we know the relationship, you know, or the power of relationships uh, when it comes to creating safe spaces for learners to thrive, right? And so if we, I'll just add another number into the mix, right? Currently, we're sitting at a little over 70% educators that identify as white. And we're in a space where we're moving towards the majority of students are identifying as either black or coming from, you know, communities of color. We call them you know, members of the global majority, right? And so part of, of, of just my own experience and research is that there's been a lack of emphasis on what does it mean to be in community with these learners when you don't necessarily identify with them 
or don't come from communities like theirs, right? And so the biggest thing has been a need to shift, one, how educators view themselves, how they view the students they're in community with, and how they view the expertise or wisdom that parents bring into the space. And so most of, of my conversations have been, and this is why you know it's titled Instructional Liberation, is because we are creating processes for instructors, parents, and students to liberate themselves from instructional norms that are rooted in whiteness, that come from Eurocentric approaches to education, that come from Eurocentric ideologies or, or understandings of the Black experience, and recognizing that those things exist in a place of harm, and they exist from a, a, a deficit lens, and they exist with, you know, a lot of, of unintentional implicit biases that harm the people that are that they're in community with. And so it is bringing attention to those things, and it is bringing intention to rectifying those things. And so um, for me, I think the biggest thing has been relationships. Uh, uh, educators not really having the, the, the tools to connect with those learners and not having the tools to connect with those parents and not having the space to co-create you know, those spaces with those respective stakeholders. All right. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, tonight we're talking with uh, Taylor Mary Weber Fields, uh, Santi Malone, and Denise Page about the uh, Village of Wisdom. And uh, eventually we're going to be talking about their Dreamship uh, program. And we're talking about uh, improving education, educational out outcome for uh, African-American children and children of, uh, of color. We're going to take our break uh, right now. I uh, want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, return and uh, continue this conversation uh, on uh, uh, the uh, Village of Wisdom and the work that, uh, that they are doing. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening as we uh, continue our conversation about the uh, Village of Wisdom and uh, its uh, Dreamship program uh, that is uh, being ad- administered. We are talking with uh, Taylor Mary Weber Fields, uh, Asante Malone, and Denise uh, Page about uh, that program and the work that uh, that they are doing. Uh, when we took our break, uh, we were discussing uh, the uh, major issues that, uh, that, uh, that, that they have uh, discovered uh, to exist uh, with the uh, school system and how they have been able to uh, impact uh, those, uh, those issues. So we wanna go to uh, uh, Ms. Page and uh, get her uh, perspective on what the uh, the major major issues are that uh, they have had to uh, confront from her perspective as a, as a parent of a student within the uh, school system. So, uh, Ms. Page. So I have two. There's one that says that uh, black parents don't show up for their kids. And that is completely not true. Like we have other things to do, like put food on the table, pay these bills, get them clothes so they can get to school. And so they don't wanna work with the timing of things that would fit into a parent's schedule. They wanna work in a systematic time. It either has to get done between seven and four or through seven and two, whatever, whatever grade your kid is in. That's the one thing. The second thing is that we are black parents we're our first, our kids' first teachers. We know our kids before we send them out to the school system. So if I'm communicating to you that my child likes to touch things and likes to, or likes to move or likes to sit and, you know, work on his own. Like if I'm telling you that you're not receptive of how you could better teach my child or any other child that has those same things. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, Ms. Weberfields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with everything that's um, that's already been said, been said. And, um, you know, Mr. Joyner, when you were kind of, you know, sharing those statistics with us earlier, I had a little bit of like a, ugh, like it was like an ick in my stomach mm-hmm. um, because I know that like our people are met with those statistics every day, but there's no context, there's no narrative for it, right? Um, And so what we fail to understand is that it's typically measuring white interests, right? Like they're not actually reporting on things that matter to us. Um, And so I think for me, one of the most pressing issues and the passion that I find in this work is holding space for us to identify, like get our issue, right? Like just because you say this is something I should be worried about. Actually, in my black world, this is the most pressing issue, right? Like, how can I even approach or tell you what a culturally affirming classroom looks like when I haven't sat down and made up my own narrative of what blackness means, right? Because if I take on what the media says as my definition of blackness, then I am going to approach everything from a deficit or victim mindset, right? Um, But when we're in space to incubate and love on and affirm one another, right, and remind us, remind us of our greatness, right? That's a whole different space, right? That's a whole different environment. Um, and so I, I think it's very much an issue of, um, of culture. And it's, and it's not even, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to take the opportunity to, 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 to frame it as an opportunity. There's an opportunity for us to reclaim 
the cultural practices that matter to us and to integrate them in ways that are meaningful and that can really have impact, not only for black learners, but all learners. Cause I'm gonna tell you now what's good for us is gonna be good for everybody. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of my, my view on, on why the work that the, the work that we're doing in the space that we're holding is so critical. Um, yeah. And Ms. Weberfield, so I, I think, um, yeah, I appreciate what all of you have said. And uh, Ms. Weberfield, when you talk about uh, culturally affirming environments and an opportunity to reclaim that which is important to us, can you give us some examples of uh, what you focus on and how receptive parents are when you present um, these issues and, and the power that they have in this way, because I, I have to imagine that um, as, a, as a parent myself, um, my kids are grown now, but I remember having to engage in the school system and the conversations that I was having and the assumptions that were made. It was, I wasn't just dealing with the school system as a parent, I was dealing with the school system as a black woman with black male children, black female children, and all of the baggage that the school system kind of heaps upon us. Right. It would have been really beneficial to have had conversations of the type of conversations that you all are having with your parents. So can you give us some examples and share with us how uh, the parents receive that information? Yeah, no, thank you so much for this question, um, Ms. Dawson. So, I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the things that we're reclaiming is space. Right. I mean, I think a big part of the Black experience is America is, is to shrink ourselves and go along to get along. Right. Um, and in that, we taking up all the space. Okay. <laughs> like we just taking it. Right. And we're taking it up with our Blackness. Um, and so, and again, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not even going to venture to try to like define Blackness because that's another thing we're trying to break the mold of. It is so expansive. Right. It's more of a space of possibility than anything else. Um, and so, um, that, that's one of the ways that we're doing that. So we have, um, what's coming to the top of mind. So we actually wrapped up, uh, one of, I think this might be our fifth or sixth season of Wisdom Wednesdays. And this is a six week series that we hold. It's actually led by our parent leaders holding space for other black parents to talk about black genius. Um, and so the black genius is, is also a framework, um, so it's not only a concept, but it's a framework. And so we spend six weeks actually talking about each um, each element and how it shows up for us um, as individuals and how it shows up in our families. Um, and it becomes such it has become such a generative space. Not only is it like therapeutic, but folks are actually offering solutions to one another. And so we're reclaiming like our greatness, right? I know many of us in the space of her for us bias, right? Or we have all that we need. And so when we're in that space, we're kind of like reminded like, whoa, there's resources here. Hey, you know, so-and-so, or you know how to do that. Let's let's talk more. There's just been a lot of connections. So um, I guess in, in, in that same spirit, I would say that um, again, something that's important to us is community. Like black folks, African folks are such a communal people, right? But we've lost some of the practices around what, because community is not just a, it's not a noun, it's a verb. Like you actually have to participate in community. Um, and so that's another thing that that we're we're living out um, in the village. Um, and yeah, anybody else? Uh, add? Yeah, yeah, earlier, uh, yeah. earlier mm -hmm. Mr. Malone oh. talked about the fact that 70% uh, of, uh, of teachers 
And uh, these school systems are white. And in other school systems, the uh, percentage is higher than, uh, than that, uh, which uh, creates some uh, cultural dissonance, some cultural differences. Uh, how have you seen that as a problem within the uh, school systems that uh, you've been engaged in and what kinds of uh, things have been able to overcome uh, that uh, lack of understanding or appreciation on the part of the uh, teachers in the, uh, uh, the, the school system? So uh, why don't we just start with uh, Ms. Uh, Weber Fields uh, with that and then go to Mr. Malone and then to Ms. Page. Yeah, and uh, Denise, did you want to add something to that last piece? Or? I was just say, as parents, we really enjoy everything that they give us, the tools they give us to navigate these spaces. That was long. So, okay, make sure you got that in there. Um, now, I forgot the question, but I know you wanted to get that in. Can you say that one more time, Mr. Irving? Yeah, uh, we're talking about the, the cultural differences uh, that exist. Uh, yeah. In fact, that uh, the uh, school system is overwhelmingly uh, white with respect to the staffing uh, that occurs and the impact that that has had on uh, the work that uh, that you see yourself doing and the issue that you have to confront. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I'll point back to the opportunity um, and the opportunities that we found because there is that cultural dissonance. It's like, well, I guess we need black space, right? <laughs> and so like um, the other thing about Village of Wisdom is that like, any space that we're inviting Black parents into, it is just Black folks. And that's often an experience that folks don't get to opt into, right? Where um, when it comes to like DEI, anti-racist work, we're often like trying to do that space. Not saying that that's the work that we do, but when we're start starting to have like these conversations around race and culture, we're forced into spaces that aren't authentically um, reflective of like what we need to talk about as like, you know, the kitchen table, everybody not coming to the kitchen table. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Grandma's kitchen table, everybody's not coming there. Right. Um, and so we, we try to emulate that experience even, right. Um, just holding space for black folks. Um, and, uh, goodness, I'm losing all the words, but I'll let, um, brother Malone get in here. Cause I know he got something good to share. Okay. Mr. Malone. Talk about the uh, the uh, percentages that you presented with respect to the staffing at yes. uh, the various schools and the impact uh, that has had on the cultural understanding and the ability of these teachers to relate uh, to uh, African American mm -hmm. children and to uh, children of color. So the impact I would say is is also represented in the data, right? For example. Black and brown students do not make up the majority of students across the, the state of North Carolina, but they make up the majority of, of long-term suspensions. Black children lead in preschool the amount of, of, of suspensions, although they don't lead in the amount of, of, of students that are represented. And so when you look at the data, you know, and, and, and the relationship, or I'll say the lack of relationship between how many students are represented in general and what specific strands of data they overpopulate, you begin to see a narrative play out, right? And within that narrative, right, there are actions and decisions that, that, that are being made based upon our skewed understanding and perception of those that we are in community with, 
And so I think one of the things that, that we do is we create spaces to have honest conversations, right? Um, for example, there was a, a classroom that I was observing and I'm watching the, the teacher discipline two students that are fighting over a sheet of paper. And so one student is a white boy, you know, who, who um, you know, has what we would say is a temper tantrum and he storms off, you know, to one side of the room. And the other kid is, is, is a black boy who's, you know, sitting back down at his desk. So the teacher is a white man. So the teacher begins to count down, telling the black student to move his desk. And if I mean, to, you know, move his seat. And if he doesn't, he's going to, you know, call home to his parents. And then he walks over to the white kid and begins apologizing to him and says, I would love for you to rejoin the class when you're ready. Please come on back and have a seat. Now, nowhere in that exchange were, were there any questions around who did what, why, anything like that. It's the, the, the teacher coming in, right? His perceived understanding of who was at fault and his decisions to remove one student versus the other. And so when I put it on his radar, he didn't even recognize it until he had to, again, play back the video time and time again and realize, well, to realize that this is actually what took place. And so this exchange with that one teacher in that one classroom is the norm for a lot of our students and a lot of our parents don't have the language to navigate those types of situations. I'll give you another situation with my children specifically. Um, there were, you know, there was a situation where a, a young kid was called the N-word. And so I'm talking to my son about what took place. And it was me who reached out to the admin of the school to let them know what happened. And so one of the things that they brought up was, well, we wish, you know, your son would have said something to us. And this is then a third. I said, he doesn't trust you. They said, huh? I said, he doesn't trust you. I said, if my son witnessed something like that and didn't put it on you all's radar, there is a gap in your relationship that needs to be addressed. I said, now, granted, I'm not at school with him. I don't know what your relationship looks like. I said, but the fact that he told me and didn't tell you means that I have a relationship with him that you don't. I said, especially when we're talking about things that impact his experience as a student. I said, and so there might have been other, other instances in which he wanted to say something to you, but didn't see the proper response that would have solicited a trusting relationship. And as a result, he decided to keep it to himself. Mm -hmm. And so again, how many students witnessed, I mean, even, even with my daughters who witnessed, you know, profanity or who talk about um, the, the, the unfairness that they experience and the disciplining of, of their peers, right? And so there's, there are a lot of these approaches when we look at the origin of these approaches come from colonialism, come from behaviorism, which has been studied and, 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 and officially stated as being obsolete. So it's like we still have these approaches to instructing students that we know aren't for their overall, you know, um, um, holistic development. And so it is creating spaces to one, call attention to that, right? But then also giving educators, giving parents, giving, you know, community members new tools and resources to walk them through how can you develop relationships with those students. And so okay. to, 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 to Taylor's point, when she was talking about the Black Genius Framework, what we do is we take these individual elements and we'll develop activities around these elements that, that, that allow parents 
to, to, you know, develop a stronger relationship with their children, but also allow educators to transform their spaces as they integrate those elements into their instruction. Okay. All right, uh, Ms. Page. So it takes away the power dynamic because the teachers come with implicit bias. They come with lack of communication and lack of trust of parents and students, right? So with being with Val, it brings the teachers to the table, the administrators to the table and take away the power dynamic that they hold. So they have to listen to what parents say and other people say about these children in these spaces. Our kids don't have culturally affirming spaces. My kids personally, they didn't see a black teacher until they got to middle school. My mm -hmm. kids were in a dual language program, but they didn't have a black teacher, not, a, not even a black male teacher until they got to middle school and high school. So they have walked around here, me teaching them how to be secure in their blackness in a space where they're one, the major, minority, right? So they have to also carry that teacher, see that and see them as being confident and can see that as combative. Mm -hmm. And once a black male is considered combative in a learning environment, <laughs> then they're not going to learn anything because mm -hmm. it's a fight for who's right. Mm -hmm. So when you actually get to a space where you can sit up here and say, hey, these parents have the knowledge listen to them. Val takes away the pressure of teachers feeling like they have to be right all the time and give parents a voice to say to the teachers, hey, why don't you try something different? Why don't you try A, B, and C instead of going straight to Z? So. All right. Well, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with leaders from Village of Wisdom, a Durham-based organization that exists to support African-American parents and students to make the educational environment culturally responsive, respectful, and affirming to ensure the success of our students. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Taylor Mary Weberfield, Arsante Malone, and Denise Page. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. 
Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with leaders from the Village of Wisdom VOW organization. This is an organization that supports parents and students of African descent to make sure that our educational system and their schools are culturally responsive and affirming so that our children can succeed in their educational pursuits. We have with us here Taylor Mary Weber Fields, Arsante Malone, and Denise Page, three leaders of VAL. So there is a program that you all have been working on called the Dreamship Program. Can you give us a little bit more information about what that program is, what you hope to accomplish, and where you are in it? Yes. Um, so I want to start by uh, kind of framing us with like this point that the Dreamship actually isn't a new thing. Um, it's actually coming from a tradition of of dreamships, right? When we think about freedom movements that have happened um, throughout our time here, there was a dreamship that preceded that, right? There was an incubation space. There was a process where folks were coming together. They were figuring out liberation. Um, and so I just want to lift that up in honor of the ancestors and the shoulders that we stand on for this great work that we're now able to do. Um, and our spin on those dreamships is that we know that the conditions for those dreamships weren't as comfortable. Um, there was a lot of um, physical threat to their safety, um, their livelihood, um, their ability to just be in the world. And we're, in thanks to their efforts, we're now at a place that we can create the conditions by which we we discover our liberation, right? Um, and so I spoke earlier about a culture of care and we are seeking to incubate those same types of uh, that same type of dreaming in a space of like love, care, um, and wellness. I know y'all been hearing this wellness stuff getting thrown around a lot since the pandemic. Everybody cares about their wellness now, right? Um, and that's also been a gap in like our communal healing. Um, and so we also want to hold space for that too, right? Um, and so in the dreamship, we are holding space for 15 parents. We're inviting folks to come into a bi-directional learning experience by which we'll figure out, right, um, what are the best ways to find liberation through arts? What, what are the ways to find liberation through advocacy? What are the ways to, to, um, to claim our liberation through research, right? And all of that will, you know, we'll be doing that learning alongside of, a process of like joyousness. And again, um, as we were spoken earlier around like reclaiming our cultural practices, um, we wanna immerse folks in those those spaces. So when we're talking about culturally affirming learning, there's, a, there's a, an experience to pull from. Um, and so I'll also mention that this is a paid fellowship experience. So we also wanna sow back into our communities financially. I mean, that's the real thing, right? Um, and so we always want to honor um, the intellectual contributions um, and the time and energy that folks put into um, spending time with us and incubating with us. And so we want to offer families a thousand dollar stipend for um, for each month that they're they're with us. And so the dreamship is um, a two year experience and um, would end in a certification where folks can continue that uh, 
that financial journey with their own consulting. Um, and so, yeah. How, how much are the uh, participants uh, paid and what kind of uh, uh, time requirement uh, oh, is, uh, is involved in uh, completing that end of, mm -hmm. the, uh, of the program effort? Yes. So the way we're looking at it now, and so I'll also name, you know, in the space that, again, it's, it's bi-directional, it's emergent, it's something that we're also seeking to learn from. And so at this stage today, April 13th, 1149 a.m., it is a 40-hour commitment across a month. Um, so every month, the expectation is that folks would um, offer at least 20 of those hours to virtual modules. So like if you imagine like doing um, uh, online courses, um, so that'll be roughly 20 hours in the month. And then the other 20 hours, uh, we actually want to um, contribute to rest. And so <laughs> 10 of those hours being don't do anything. Like we just want to pay you to not do anything. Um, and then another 10 hours, we would want to immerse families in some kind of wellness practice and expose folks to different types of healing modalities. How, how does a person get involved uh, in uh, this, uh, this effort? Yes, yeah, so our application dropped on Sunday. So the application is live right now. Um, you can go to vowdreamship.org, um, V-O-W-D-R-E-A-M-S-H-I-P.org, um, and you can send in your application. We'll also have an application day if you need help just kind of thinking through some of the prompts because we're a little abstract, so it's not your typical questions uh, on, upon the application. Um, so we're holding space for folks to come in a brainstorm on Oh, what is that? Uh, April 22nd. So if you have time, please join us for um, that virtual space. And that'll also come along with your uh, the completed application. I meant with that feeling, going to that website, you'll see that information as well. And so you mentioned um, 15 parents. Are these parents of children of a certain age um, or it's, it's open to all parents who have school-aged children, I would assume? Yeah, thank you, April. Um, and so the way we approach uh, when we talk about uh, Black parents, um, we're expanding that into, we're really talking about Black caregivers. So we know in our community, sometimes it's auntie that's raising the baby or grandma, right? And so we consider all of those caregivers traditional and not. Um, maybe there's the foster parents out there that could benefit from an experience like that. We would welcome them into the space. Young mothers, you know, young parents, we'd love to have some young parents in this space. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, yeah, we want to increase our babas. We want some more babas in the space. So fathers coming through. Janice, you, you got anything to add? No, that's about it. Fathers, single parents, mm -hmm. dual, you know, dual parents, anybody that has a Black genius in their household. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I will say the stipend is per household. So, you know, if you're a couple, you know, maybe one parent comes through this first cycle and then we'd be more than happy to take on another um, other parent in another cycle. Um, Mr. Malone, you had something you wanted to add to that. Not really. I mean, it's the revolution. Like the dreamship is our take on the revolution. You have social mobility, you have economic empowerment, you have, you know, positioning parents as experts and being paid for it. You have positioning rest as, you know, a healing, an actual like healing metric. Um 
So no, I, I don't have anything to add other than the, the, the revolution will not be televised, <laughs> but it will be on the dream ship. <laughs> so, you know, uh, as you all have been talking about the work of your organization and the work that you all do as leaders in the organization, one of the things that Irv and I have talked about often on the show is the efforts of some to remove culturally relevant curriculum uh, within our school systems. We're seeing this across the country. We're seeing this in you know various communities. And two thoughts I'd like to get your reaction to. So one, I guess, what is your reaction to this effort on the part of some to strip away that which is culturally relevant for so many of our students. And two, um, the increased importance of your organization where we can't rely upon many of the school systems and educators to be culturally sensitive. Mr. Malone, we'll start with you. All righty. So... Do me a favor, please, and repeat the question one more time, because I have a few different places that I'm going, and I want to bring all of the thoughts back to the center. Can you talk about the increasing importance of the work that you and your organization is doing in light of the efforts on some to remove Black history and culturally relevant history from the curriculum? So the importance, um, I always say truth is, is everyone's birthright. And, and so it isn't just us pushing for culturally relevant pedagogy or culturally affirming learning environments or culturally sensitive, like it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's more so giving individuals the objective truth and allowing them to make educated decisions based off of how they wish to self-determine the trajectory of their lives. And so that is that is really what we're after. It is uncovering the truth of everything, right? And so when we instruct our children, we understand that traditionally there is a slanted approach to that instruction that is aligned with whiteness. But again, we understand why that is the way that it is right like historically we know that at one point in time it was illegal for people to read let alone study or go to school right we know at one point in time it was illegal for blacks to go to to university it was illegal for them to go to grad school it was illegal for them to you know have phds and so all of these different barriers that existed within society have been to keep us from uncovering the truth right even even when you when you look at um, the push against quote unquote critical race <laughs> critical race theory, right? And what you really have is is individuals that might have learned that their grandparents, and I'm going to say this, and this is going to be very raw, but it is truth, that their grandparents or their great grandparents might have participated in carving up people and creating trophies and taking those trophies and passing them down as heirlooms to their grandchildren. They might have learned that. And that that is a very uncomfortable truth, right? Or we might have learned that when we talk about the Brown versus Board of Education, that integration only occurred one way, 
that black students were forced to integrate white spaces as opposed to there being some equitable integration of whites being funneled into black communities and that creating the erasure of, of blacks from the profession. And so, but by having honest conversations around our end goal, our end goal is to teach people the truth about the world that we live in, about the sciences that we study, about the originators of the sciences that we study. And where do we fit in all of that? Because it is a part of our experience as humans, but it's also a part of our experience as black people in America. And so I think once we put our egos to the side, this is white, black, brown, everyone, you know, when we put our egos to the side and begin to have this honest approach to instruction, I think that is when we'll begin to, you know, awaken on this new dawn where we can see one another for, for the people that we actually are. Thank you for that. Um, Ms. Weber Fields, anything to add? And then Ms. Page. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think the, you know, a lot of what Arsante said, you know, this was the amen section over here because, um, yes. <laughs> and I think what, you know, what's also being, what came up for me when Arsante was speaking was just also like, this information should be accessible. Um, I know a lot of my learning about my Blackness came through, you know, I was doing my own searching, but I also had to go to college to get like more information. Everybody's not gonna go there, nor should they. It was also a traumatizing experience, right? Imagine me getting that same information, not at a PWI, but like in the comfort of like other black folks, right? And getting a truth, um, a true experience. And so I do think that in the face of like woke culture and like this new kind of thing that's happening that I will say has been co-opted from black people, because we've been woke, in case y'all didn't know, we've been leading the woke movement. I think, you know, it's continually being co-opted by other folks. Um, and I think, again, to Arsante's point, like we deserve, we are, we can be self-determined, right? And we don't have to be swayed by a national narrative to determine what we want for our community. And so, again, in us holding space to self-determine, like that's the increased, um, that's the increased need um, for this work because um, we're learning our power and we're we're owning it. Um, so we want to own it before somebody else does. So, yes. Mm -hmm. And I concur with Taylor. Um, we, if you think about when you was in school and learning black history or world history or whatever, if you take a moment and sit back, you didn't learn a lot of that from school. You learned it from yourself. Like you were self-taught and no matter what the world say about CRT or whatever else it is going on about, where what should be taught in school, if you are willing to learn about yourself because you want to know and crave that knowledge, you are. So this is a space where you can come. You'll be amazed on how many teachers are here. You got homeschoolers, you got parents who are already teaching themselves and their kids. So you don't need a, a systematic way to learn about your race. Mm -hmm. You're gonna naturally do it on your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I will just add, I'm sorry, but like also a lot of the things that we learn about ourselves still come from the sciences of eugenics. You know, even now the studies around, you know, women's, black women's experiences in, in, in healthcare and how a lot of their approaches to healthcare still are steeped in these, these practices that was seeking to dehumanize us. And so even an in instruction, that, that banking model of instruction as far as like viewing children as these empty receptacles, like all of those things aren't culturally unique to us as a people. And as a result, they've amounted in our harm. Yeah. 
So as I'm reflecting back on, on when my kids were in school, I, I am just saying, wow, this would have been such a wonderful organization for um, me to have gotten involved in. And I'm sure we have some folks who are listening who are thinking the same as me, and they may have children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews. Um, how can folks get in touch and become involved with VAL? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um there are a lot of ways to be connected um to be connected with with us and I'll say in terms of the dreamship, right? Um, you can visit vowdreamship.org and learn more information there about the dreamship specifically. But if you want to learn more about Village of Wisdom as an organization and the work that we do, you can visit us at villageofwisdom.org. We're also on all social media platforms as at Village of Wisdom. And if you are in the Triangle Durham specifically, check out our Facebook page um, where we have Black parents actively doing that resource sharing I was saying I was sharing about before. Um, so that's Black Parents Connect Durham on Facebook, and so you can you know follow along there and connect with you know even if you never fully tap in with Val, you can be in a space with other Black parents. And so, yeah, I think those are the, the best ways to get in touch with us right now. Oh, and if you just want to learn more about Black Genius, maybe you want to copy a Black Genius t-shirt. Y'all can't see us, but we rock in the gear. Um, you can go to blackgenius.com and copy some merch. So, yeah. Thank excellent. You. Excellent. Well, well, thank you, all three of you, for yeah. sharing your time and your wisdom and your insight and your enthusiasm. We're unfortunately out of time. And so we'd like to thank Taylor, Mary Weber Fields, Arsante Malone and Denise Page. They are leaders within Village of Wisdom, a Durham-based organization that exists to support African-American parents and students to make our schools culturally responsive, respectful and affirming spaces to ensure the success of our children. We, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.